Ryan to Comments on Talakha of Revolution Jalovich. Thanks for tuning in to the last episode of our first season, and we hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and are excited to hear more from Revolution in the future. We're both astonished to find that you are tuning in from across the globe, and we hope that each one of you will share it with as many others as you can, whether they'll agree or not. Revolution, is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners at home? Hi, Uri. Um, well, for those listeners who have learned with me in the past, I hope that this season has made your life a bit easier and has provided you with reference material to help explain the method to, you know, all those skeptical others. And to all listeners, first off, I'm grateful for the feedback some of you have sent. It helps us produce a better podcast. And second, I hope that we've introduced you to the method of making sense of halacha. And speaking of the method, what have you got for us today? What I've got is what students keep telling me is a Rav Elisha classic. In fact, you've told me that. You use this example to explain the method. I just want it known that I wanted to call this podcast Revolution at Sinai. <laughs> really? So regardless of how incredibly gyvedic that is, how would you spell it? doesn't matter. The point is it's funny. Uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> but, but, but the reason that we titled this podcast Common Sense Halacha is because the fundamental conceit of this method is that halachot historically are common sense norms. To state this in classic theological terms, uh, to borrow from Rambam, God's norms are good for the human condition. Halacha, historically, has been about living as good and godly human beings, individually and as a Jewish society. That's it. In other words, halacha is common sense. At which point, everyone says, what do you mean halacha makes sense? What about chok? The whole point of chok is it doesn't make sense, like paraduma. So without getting into how to read Rambam, and a slew of other medieval philosophers, and even leading Kabbalists, the question of Chok and Paraduma is exactly what we are going to talk about today. If we've planned this correctly, it should be Parashat Parah this week. And so I want to talk about how the supposedly most enigmatic mitzvah in the Torah is actually very clear, so long as you read it in the proper context, and to see that Chazal also understood it to be clear. So... Let's let's do that now. Let's look at the psukim. And let's look first at the process of purification itself. And then later we'll look at the material used for purification. Why is it a red ephra para aduma? That will be later. Bemidbar Yudtet Yudalaf, chapter 19, verse 11, through the end of the parak. Hanogebamit, Adam, Anyone that touches the dead body of any man shall be impure. Wait, 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 wait. Do you know what impure means? The opposite of pure. Uh -huh. I sense a loop. So let's leave the word impure for now, and we'll come back to defining Tumor later. And will be impure for seven days. And if he does the purification ritual on the third day, he shall be pure on the seventh day. And if he doesn't go through the purification ritual on the third day, on the seventh day, he won't be pure. Okay, so we have a process. That shifts on the third day following death, and it ends on the seventh day. Okay. Whoever touches the body of any man that died and does not go through the purification ritual, he impurifies God's tabernacle and shall suffer karet. For the uh, sprinkle water nice. wasn't tossed on him. And he will be impure. His impureness will stay with him. Zot Adam This is the teaching. A man who dies in a tent. 
All who come into the tent and who are already in it will be impure for seven days. And every open vessel, meaning that which has no cover sealed onto it, will also be impure. And all who touch in the field one who fell by sword or any other dead body, or the bone of a man, or even a grave, shall be impure for seven days. And they shall take to the impure person the ashes of the burnt offering, and uh, spring water mm-hmm. shall be put together into a vessel. And a pure person shall take some Azov. <laughs> yes, Azov. Um, that's a good question. There are a number of possibilities here. There are, in fact, articles written about this. But I would argue with Rav Sadiagon that this is what is known as Bible Hissen. Not to be confused with the Hissopis of Hissinalis of today, which doesn't even naturally grow in Israel. Okay. And the pure person shall take some Bible Hissop and dip it into our ashy spring water mix. And he shall sprinkle the water mixture on the tent and all the vessels. And on all the persons who were there. I'm going to guess that Bible hyssop serves some sort of practical spritzing purpose. A proto-super soaker, if you will. <laughs> okay, nice. Bible hyssop, also known as origanum syriacum, or Lebanese Syrian oregano, is the main herb in the Zatar spice mix and is an aromatic perennial herb in the mint family. So, and it provides a nice aroma in the house as a person is being spritzed. But beyond that, it is in a sense a proto-super soaker, as you put it, because it has a high density of relatively shape-holding leaves and branches, which are covered in a hair-like substance. Hair-like? They're fuzzy. I thought fuzzy was he had no hair. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Continuing. And on the one who touched a bone, or one who was slain, or the or a dead body, or a grave. And the pure shall sprinkle on the impure on the third day, and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, and launder his clothes, and wash himself in water, and be pure in the evening. And the person who is impure and does not purify himself shall earn curry. Good. So now we've completed the seven-day process. Okay. And the man who is impure and does not purify himself shall earn karit, for he impurifies the sanctuary of the Lord. The purifying water has not been sprinkled upon him, and he remains impure. And this shall be for you a law forever. The one who sprinkles the cleansing water shall wash his clothes, and the one who touched the water shall be impure until the evening. Hold on. What does that mean, touched the water? Based on the order of the text, it means the one who touched the leftover waters. But... Once we explain what Tum is, then we'll come back to why that matters. Okay. And all who touch the impure shall be themselves impure, and the afflicted soul shall be impure into the evening. Oh, okay, good. That's a good orthodox lowercase o reading. But let's unpack it. 
and understand it a bit better. Can you tell me the story of what we just read in your own words? I can do my best, but um, I'm not really sure I understood everything I just read. What do you mean you don't understand it? It's common sense. I'll leave you the Torah if you leave me the jokes. <laughs> but that was funny. <laughs> okay, story time. We have someone who, for some reason or another, is in a tent with a dead body. And wait, 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 wait. What do you mean for some re reason or another? There are only so many reasons that one would be in a tent with a dead body. If you find yourself in a tent with a dead body, it is because you are a family member or a family member equivalent of closeness to the deceased. Edge cases aside, the only reason you'd be allowed to be near the person near death is if you two were close. Which means? That someone close to you has died, and that that has had some sort of emotional effect on you. Good. All of which means you're experiencing deep emotional trauma, which is why we tell you to take a break from society for seven days to process it. Exactly. We tell them they are Tamei. Wait, now tell me what Tamei means based on what you just told me. It means that you're carrying some sort of negative emotional weight that is so heavy that you would be expected to need to withdraw from the world. And other people may even want to limit contact with you because those who even just witness your pain would inevitably end up feeling a less powerful negative emotional weight. Yes, all tumor is trauma or, or other negative experiences. But that is an episode for another time. Which means, now we can talk about Hanogea Bemehanida. Why does a person who touches the sprinkle water become impure? Your earlier question. Well, let's start with the textual pshat. This touching of the water is listed after the whole ceremony has happened. Yeah. Okay, next, notice that in real life, some water will always have to remain in the vessel if you withdrew water only by dipping in Bible hyssop. And, wait, that, that part is clear. Yeah. And then last, although Chazal didn't say that explicitly, it does come up in Sifrei Zuta. There they bring up two conditions. One where you touched more than a Ravid, and one where you touched less than a Ravid. And how would you touch less than a Ravid of ash water? Uh, you're wiping out the jug or something like that? Which means if you're touching the ash water and there's more than a Ravid that is merely being wiped out. That you're misusing this resource, this ash water soap, this expensive ash water. Ignore the fact, listeners, that I'm not supposed to know it's expensive yet. We'll find out together later. Was set aside for this particular kadosh purpose, and you've skimmed off the top to take your own quick shower. Exactly. But it may have been truly leftover soap. So you arouse judgmental negative emotions in others, i.e. Tumah, your Tameh, judgmentally repulsive, but merely for a day. So now... Let's continue reviewing these psukim and tell me what happens after the original person became Tameh. An Ishtahor, an unaffected person, takes the ashes of a burnt animal, presumably the Paraduma. Don't worry, we'll get to why it's red. He takes the ashes of the burnt animal, Eferechatat, and mixes them into the water, making Menida. Good. And Menida, Nida means moving, so. What does the Torah say to do with the water, with this ash water? To move it in the general direction of someone's face. That is, to spritz them with it. And good, good. And what happens when you spritz ash water on someone? They get annoyed with you. Definitely not speaking from experience. 
<laughs> Fine. <laughs> and what hap- happens to them? Um, I think I remember reading a biography of Ben Franklin when I was in when I was third grade. Uh, that his parents used tallow, condensed animal fat, to make soap and candles. And so if you burn an animal, I assume some of the fat will remain liquid, even while the rest becomes ash, which means that ash water is some sort of proto-soap. And then if we spritz the guy, we're actually just giving him an, uh, an involuntary shower. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, the Torah may indeed mean ashes mixed in the fat, because the Torah and any text often assumes that referring to one ingredient or aspect causes a reader or listener to picture all the inherently related ingredient aspects that are also meant. Which is a concept you remember from high school English. Synecdoche? Right, so either way, whether this includes fat or is merely ash water from charred flesh alone, you're right, both are soaps. Ash water, in fact, was the original soap. It was called lye, not to be confused with wheat. We call lye today, which is sodium hydroxide, which will burn your skin. Rather, it's a caustic alkaline substance, which removes dirt. And by the way, what kind of water do we use for this ash water soap? Ayn Chaim, spring water. Which is usually... Uh, cleaner than other water, and mm-hmm. often colder as well. And if you get cold, soapy water splashed on your face, what would you do, other than get annoyed with the person... Uh, you'd, you'd wipe it off and then you know, dry your hands. And if you wipe soapy water off your face, what will come off with it? Whatever dirt has accumulated on your face since the last time you washed it. And when you dry your hands, what will come off with the water? The dirt on your hands as well. Okay, precisely. Now, it's interesting you said since the last time the face was washed. When in the process of mourning does this ash water washing happen? On the third day after the funeral. Out of how many days? Seven. So? So from the third day, an unaffected person, meaning someone who was outside the family, an Ishtahor, a representative of society, enters the house and starts telling the mourner, you know, you, you have to start accepting comforters. You have to start connecting with the people who are going to empathetically ease you back into the real world where you're expected to be a functioning person. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that you want to freshen up a bit before accepting guests even though you won't fully bathe until the end of this process. Good. Good. And, and on a more pragmatic level, two plus days is also enough time to let whatever contagion, which may be responsible for the death, pass, and then other people are more comfortable you know, to come visit. Now, ask me the next question. If the mourner goes through this ritual on the third day, why do they also have to go through it on the seventh day? What does the mourner do differently on the seventh day? The mourner washes their face again with uh, mechadot ash water in order to leave the house, and then goes and fully bathes in water. And that bathing would both wash off the dirt accumulated from a week sitting at home without showering, and the emotional trauma from experiencing the death, so that they can re-enter the real world. Good. Good. Without turning it to Chazal, does this all make sense? Um, mostly, there was Pesach Kavala, which didn't make any sense. Um, why does the person who sprinkles the ash water themselves become tame? Wait. Based on what we said, that tuma means trauma or negative experience, answer your own question. Okay. If we're reading tr- tuma as some sort of emotional trauma, then the question is, why does someone who comes to comfort you walk away themselves feeling uncomfortable? 
specifically what is the Kohane, an unrelated figure who shouldn't be burdened with your trauma, as a friend or family member would be, also walk away feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I'm remembering a few times in my life when I've been called to help make a minion for a Leviah funeral or Shiva, and even if I don't know the person, it's it's sad. Um, and that's kind of weird. You know, why should I be bothered by some stranger's death? And yet it is that confrontation with mortality and, and discomfort we feel comforting anyone when nobody has good answers to any of their questions. Okay. Which also explains why all the Koenim involved in the process, the, the burner and the ash carrier and the spritzer, etc., all become tame. A bunch of Kohanim who are ordinarily forbidden from engaging with death are engaging in the ceremony specifically for mourning rituals. Of course it's going to be a heavy moment. Good. Good. And these are all the con- conclusions that Chazak came to in some of the various places in which Prajumai is discussed. Exactly. There are, however, two other discussions of Prajumai rabbinical literature in Vamidaraba and in Sikta Dravkana, which seem to belie what we've argued here. They discuss Prajumai as a total mystery. So let's start with Sikta Dravkana, a Talmudic era midrash, which is quoted by medieval sources despite full manuscripts being lost until the 19th century. Sikta Dravkana dedicates a chapter, a whole chapter, to Paraduma. The paragraph opens with the question of how purification works and then brings the following example. I'm reading some selected passages from Siktadar of Kahana, chapter 4, sections 3 and 4. Wait, wait, okay, before you start reading, I want to acknowledge that we're grabbing pieces from the long text, the whole chapter. Um, Siktadar of Kahana comes to us in, as we said, chapters, divided by topic and then see theme within those chapters. We're going to be quoting across the theme within the parak about Praoduma. And while I've read the whole parak and written about it in peer-reviewed research, we trust that you listeners trust, that we have the integrity to not deceive you about the content and content t- context of the parak. And as always, you are welcome to send us your disagreements at commonsensealacha at gmail.com. Okay, once again, reading from Sikta Ravikana, Parak Dalit, Para Aduma. Rav Yitzchak Patach, Rav Yitzchak opened, sermonized. Kol zenisiti b'chokmah, all this I thought I could fathom with wisdom. Amarti echakema vehi meni. I said, I will become wiser, and yet it eludes me. This is a quote from Kohelet, which is about to be explained. It's written in Malachim Aleph, and God gave wisdom to Shlomo and much understanding. And this is here to establish that Shlomo, also the author of Kohelet, was the recipient of divine wisdom, and even he couldn't fathom whatever the it of the previous Pasuk was. Good, good. Now, the part we're skipping is a list of all the things that he did understand. Shlomo was the wisest astrologer, he was the best predictor of the future, was most able to see through any other person's wiles, was smarter than Adam HaRishon in being able to identify the characters of, literally to name, of both his own self and God, was smarter than both Joseph, Yosef, and the generation that lived with God in the desert, learned humility from trees and hyssops, and understood the moral difference between killing various creatures ranging from land animals down to less developed fowl to mere fish, Okay, he understood everything about life there is to understand, but... Amar Shlomo, Shlomo said, Al kol ele amarati, on all of these I have stood. Parasha hazot shel para, kivan shaiti no ge'aba, haiti doreshba v'chokerba, amarti echakema v'hirchokamimani. But on this parasha, here not meaning weekly sidra, but 
paragraph of the Torah, the Parsha of the Parah, which lines up with what we call today Parakutat chapter 19 of Bimidbar, which is what we, which is what we have read today. But this Parsha of Paraduma, every time I would get to it, I would expound on it and research it, approaching it with my wisdom. And as I said in Kohelet, I would approach it with wisdom, but it, the meaning of this passage, it eludes me. Meaning, according to the Midrash, Shlomo says, I understood all that about life, but something else beyond all this knowledge about life is beyond me. Something else beyond life, death. So the Midrash says that Shlomo can't understand Paraduma. It's the rabbinic way of saying, I understand everything about life, but wisdom can't explain death. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Continuing in the Midrash. In every matter of purification that God discussed with Moshe, he also told him it's purification. When they reached the verse of, Tell the priests, sons of Aharon, do not become impure for a dead person. Moshe said before God, Master of the world, when one does become impure, how does he become pure? And God did not reply. At that moment, Moshe's face reddened, as it says in Kohelet, Chet Aleph, H1, and then the Midrash directly quotes, and the boldness of his face changed. Okay, I understand why he translated those as boldness, but it really means countenance, appearance, and so it means that his countenance, appearance, turned red, that he became upset as God in existence offered no answer to his question of how to handle death. When they reached the section of the Paraduma, the red heifer, Kodesh Baruch Hu said to Moshe, that statement which I told you to tell the priests to avoid dealing with death, you asked before me, Master of the world, if they do become impure, how do they become pure? And I didn't answer you. This here is the purification process. And you shall take the ashes to the impure person. This is which means that it's not the paraduma itself, but the purification process, which is the chuvah. Good. Now let's explain what we just read. Why does Moshe not get an answer in Vayikra for how to be metahara, purify the time I made. It's a simple soap process. It seems that God wants Moshe to wait, as if to symbolize that necessary waiting and processing death before giving him the answer. The same way a mourner needs time before being given a way out. And then only after time has passed, God told Moshe, this is the process of purification. Where even here too in this process, we wait three days before approaching the mourner and start spritzing. Good, good, nice. So let's summarize. The chukah, spoken of in Psikhtadar of Kahana, is not, in fact, the cow being red. Nor is it even the ritual whereby the purifier becomes impure. Rather, the chok is merely, well, merely, death itself. Let's start with the opening. Shlomo is the wisest person to have ever lived. And here is a list of all the things Shlomo figured out about life. And why do these things work the way they do? And what eludes him? Paraduma. No, the section on Paraduma, which covers... The redness of the cow. 
the purification process with, with the cow and the purification process with the mourner. Give me something broader. Morning. Nice. This passage, this parsha, this parak is really about death and how to respond to it. And so when Shoma says he can't understand this passage, he's not saying he can't understand a rule, a simple rule with soap water. He's saying he can't understand death. But of course he doesn't understand death. No one understands death. That's not even a point worth raising. Really? Nobody in the history of rabbinic or Near Eastern literature has ever questioned why death exists? If you return to my common refrain, I'm 24 and I'm an idiot. Um, there's a story of Rabbi Lezer dying early on in Brachot, where Rabbi Yochanan comes to comfort him. And he finds Rabbi Lezer crying and he asks him why. Is it because you, know, you didn't learn enough Torah or because you're not wealthy? Which are really just all questions. Are you crying because your legacy won't live on? And Rabbi Lezer says no. It's because his beauty will disappear, meaning he physically will stop existing. And he's crying because he's considering human mortality. And then they both cried because they couldn't confront death. Nice. Then, of course, there's the Epic of Gilgamesh, whose second half is all about the search for immortality. After his best bro Enkidu gets knocked off by the gods, uh, he goes to talk to Utnapishtim, the famous Babylonian Noah counterpart, um, and the only recipient of immortality from the gods. And Gilgamesh goes to visit him to learn how to conquer death, and then discovers he can't even conquer sleep, showing just how far off we are from understanding the great mystery of life, which is death. Whoa, I guess I never thought about death before. Dying seems pretty bad. I guess good thing I don't plan on doing it. Uh huh. And now we've returned to your other common refrain: "I'm a genius and I'm never gonna die." Fine, good. It is a great mystery of existence, right? And thus, of course, Lomo couldn't figure it out. He goes through the whole list of things he understands about life, and then he can't understand death. Exactly. And now we actually understand the Chok of Praduma, the Chokness of Praduma. It's not why on earth is there a red cow. That's not a question ever even addressed by Chazal anywhere, making it apparently obvious to them. But why does death even exist in the first place? What about that second text you talked about in Bimba uh, Rabba? Presumably the, the famous one where Rabbi Yochanan is interrogated by a non-Jew who argues the process of Paraduma smacks of witchcraft. Ah. So, uh, as I showed in the book chapter, we'll link in the description, Rabbi Yochanan responded to a Gentile Christian. The word there, used there to describe the non-Jew is, is Amin, as well the contents of his claim show that he was an early follower of Jesus who claimed that death had been overcome, and Rebecca ben Zakai argued that Christians with their exorcisms should recognize that human sadness and madness and pain over death had not been overcome. Then, after the rebuttal of the Christian claim that death had been overcome, Rebecca ben Zakai responded to his students who asked despairingly, does this process really help or matter? Rebecca answered that even as water itself has no power to purify one from death, death does not necessarily have the power to leave a permanent emotional impurity on others either. And God, existence's master, has guided us to respond to death through these steps. These are God's instructions, inherent laws of conduct, i.e. Uh, for dealing with death. Um, <clears throat> I should add, um, this version, this Midrash, is also found in Pesach of Kahana, and there, there are words that continue after the Midrash, but those words are merely a refrain that the editor 
of the chapter in Pesukah Rav Kana. This keeps adding at the end of each midrash. They're not part of the actual midrash. So, okay. So now we've explained everything, except for one thing. Oh, oh, okay, fine. You noticed, fine. So I suppose we have to answer everyone's burning question: Why a para aduma? Why a red heifer? And what's the deal with the ceremony of how it's burned? So, so let's read the psukim in the the preparatory ceremony of burning the praduma for their its eventual use in the morning process. Okay, same place as before, from the top of the parak to Pasuk Zion. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aharon, saying, This is the law of instruction that Hashem has commanded you to say. Speak unto B'nai Yisrael, take to yourself a pure red heifer that has no blemish on it, and has never had upon it a yoke. And you shall give the cow to Elazar the Kohen, and he will take the cow outside of the camp, and will slaughter it in front of you. And Elazar the Kohen will dip his finger in the blood, and will flick it on the opening of the Ohel Moed, tent of meeting, seven times. And he will burn the cow in his sight, her skin, her flesh, her blood, and even her dung shall be burnt. And the priest shall take cedar wood and azov, Bible hyssop, and a red thread, and toss it all into the fire. Good. Now, let's talk about the practicality of all the elements of this ritual in the order they show up. Because it's not obvious to us in the 21st century what exactly is going on here. So let's start with that. With what question should we ask to figure out what's going on here? Well, we should pro- figure out if there's anything particularly special about a uh, a red cow. Good. How do we do that? I don't know. Ask ChatGPT. Google's more accurate. Okay, so Googling red cow breed native to the Middle East, and I have found the Damascus cow also known as Shami, which is a red-brown, blackish cow with variations on that theme within the breed. Good. Now tell me about the Damascus cow. It's considered the best milk-producing breed in the Middle East, producing both more milk than average and at a higher-than-average fat content, and are also the largest of the Middle Eastern breeds. They have a high potential for longevity, heat tolerance, and disease resistance. Oh, it's endangered. Only about 10,000 left. But this cow seems great, you know, produces a lot of milk and does so for a long time, disease-resistant and huge, so it will also produce lots of meat, which means it's a pretty good breed. Wait, are you suggesting that Paraduma just means of the Damascus breed? Yes. Why don't you say that? If I tell you stop at a red light, do you know what I mean? Yes, okay. You're saying the same way I inhabit the cultural context in which red light means traffic control signal at an intersection of a road. Biblical era Jews would know red cow means what we call today the Damascus cow. Precisely. Accepting Paraduma as biblical shorthand for this breed, what about the, the whole total redness thing? Not every Damascus cow is totally red, so why should total redness matter? That is exactly the right question. Why should total redness matter? Are you going to tell me that there's some practical value in redder um, fur? Cowhide is actually the skin and cow hair, not fur, but yes. Boy, Grandpa would have been rolling in his grave if he'd learned a city boy from Brooklyn just done schooled me about cows. 
hey, I live in a kibbutz. That makes most of its money from milk production. I live on this kibbutz, too, and it's nothing but Holsteins in the cow shed. Fine. Do you feel better now that you've proven to the audience you know something about cows, too? I moo. Yes? So to answer your question, there is actually a practical value in redder hair. Redder hair means it absorbs less heat, which means it produces more milk. Okay. And what about the other conditions for the paraduma? You tell me. A share and moom. It's kind of obvious. A blemished cow is less good. Let's not enter the body positivity debate at the moment. And a share loa la aleha ol that has never been yoked, meaning it's never gone to work plowing in the fields, meaning it's either very young. Good. The Tanim say that the age of the paraduma is no more than five, which is just as the cow reaches maturity. Or it's lived a very pampered life. Um, Wagyu beef, the most expensive beef in the world, is famously never worked or made to use its daily massaged muscles in any way. Um, there's there's some joint that sells kosher Wagyu. A, a brisket, which would be maybe 20 bucks at my local kosher butcher, goes for like over 300 online. The beef is supposed to be just incredibly tender and fatty. And Hey, do you want to like go out for burgers or something when we're done here? Um... <laughs> yes, yeah, so the text... The text gives us no reason to believe that Brad Dumas is massage at all, right? Um, so while the beef is probably tender, yes, there's another side effect of never being worked. Oh, knowledge from one of my useless passions becomes useful. Uh, Rolls-Royce, the, the most luxurious car co- manufacturer, only uses leather from unworked or virgin cows raised in barbed wire-free fields to ensure that not a single stretch or scratch is visible. Crack the secret of Fra Duma. Fra Duma is a cow that produces a high amount of high-value milk. She's a large cow and thus could produce a lot of meat. Meat, which would be exceptionally tender and thus more valuable. And even its leather would be of the highest quality. Are you saying that the Paraduma is a literal, altogether now listeners at home, cash cow? <laughs> yes. Which explains why the rabbis in that story with Dama Benetina were willing to pay so much for one because that may have just been fair market value for a cow like that. Good. And by the way, why are the officials of the people, the temple or the rabbis, interested in buying the Parauduma? Probably because, due to the expense, rarity, and amount of ash received off of a single cow, I recently learned that cows, which can weigh some 1,200 pounds, can individually provide, near as makes no difference, a thousand meals. Uh, Cows are really big. Because of all those factors, there's probably a national stockpile, presumably in the hands of the Kohanim, because they're the ones directed to handle the whole purification process. Which has the added benefit of having a communal official be the one who interacts on behalf of the community with the mourner, and carrying the weight of the kahuna, and he comes to help you through the mourning process. Nice. And what do we do with the praduma, or cash cow as you put it? We burn it. Even the dung, so you can't even get any fertilizer out of it. Good. We see something with maximum potential, and we cut it off. Which has some interesting symbolism. This whole burning ceremony is in, let's call it, pre-response to death. We mourn death because we mourn the loss of potential interaction with a person. And here we take this cow with maximum potential, and we get rid of it. As if to say that this isn't allowed in our world. You know what? Yes, yes. Let's Let's actually talk about that about the pre-response and the burning ceremony. What does the ceremony look like? Over cedar wood, along with a zove, the Bible hyssop, presumably for smell. Actually, both of them smell good. 
And we wrap the whole thing with a red string. Why is there a red string? Isn't that what you're here for? <laughs> Where else do we use red strings? Uh, Orla, first fruits. We wrap a red string around trees. What joint symbolism can we draw from two uses, these two uses? That it signifies being set apart for a specific Mikdash-related use, that even though it might be of incredible value to you on the market, you're actually going to use it for a holy act. Good. And what about a practical use? Um, what's, the thread made, what's the thread made out of? Well, according to Kilayim, Mishnah Kilayim, Tet Aleph, uh, Chapter 9, Mishnah Aleph, 1, Kainim only wore wool or linen. And we know that Tolat Shani was part of their clothing, and you can't dye linen easily, therefore it's wool. Which means that it could also act as a kindling or tinder. Nice. Now remember that Azov and Cedar are both expensive. Is the dye for the Tolat very expensive? Yes. It is what we call today Kermes Red, which is a very expensive Mediterranean red dye. So we have this process where we don't just burn up this wildly expensive cow, but basically everything surrounding the process is as expensive as possible, representing a massive investment, and then we burn it up, which in and of itself is a metaphor for life. We work and to learn, to understand, to have meaningful friendships, to better ourselves and others, and at some point it all just goes away. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And this whole ceremony is designed to get us thinking about death and thus the value of life. So why did it get lost to time? Um, we don't have time to actually discuss that in this episode. <laughs> what happened to Kara Duma once we went into Galut, and once there's no Kohen network, that vast is readily available. Look, those of, those of our listeners, those of you with background knowledge, are welcome to reach out via email. Though we expect a Twitter account to come soon, so hopefully we can address that there. Look, we, al we also don't have time to talk about how Midrashim discussed the mystery of redemption by talking about the quote-unquote paradoxes of Paraduma, of how a person becomes dirty in order to become clean, as we saw with the ashes. That's not an inexplicable law. Rather, those Midrashim discuss how the Jewish people's experience of being dirtied by exile and persecution is itself the process that brings about the final messianic purification. But we don't have time to discuss that either. So let's take a moment to review. Paraduma is split into two parts, the process of purification after exposure to death and the preparation for that process. We saw that the process of purification is a reasonable, pragmatic, empathetic, and compassionate way to guide a mourner through grief. The initial familial isolation allows the family to process their trauma alone. And then the community on the third day makes a mourner wipe their face with cold, soapy water and forces the mourner to at least partially allow society in midway through the mourning process. And finally, the Torah ends the process by making the mourner wipe their face again with cold, soapy water and leave the house and bathe. And we looked at Siktor Rav Kahana's discussion of the chok, the chokyut of this parsha, um, as understood by Shlomo and Moshe Rabbeinu, and saw that it was not why a red cow, or why does this process purify, or even why, as asked in another place, why does a purifier become impure? Remember, impure means holding on to some form of emotional trauma. The question was merely, merely, was about death itself. 
And lastly, we looked at the Paraduma herself. Why is the cow red? We saw that the Paraduma can only be the Damascus cow, which is actually an incredibly valuable cow, a representation of the lost potential when someone dies and, and we burn it up. In that case, I think we're done here. Thank you, Revolution. Thank you, Uri. Thank you for listening to this episode of Common Sense Halakha with Revolution Shalovich. You can find some earlier iterations of this episode's ideas in a 2015 Dwar Torah on BeitHillel.com and in a chapter in the 2018 book Jewish Religious and Philosophical Ethics, available on Revolution's academia.edu page. Additionally, the specific chemistry of the ashes was brought to our attention in the article Red Heifer, a Soap Ritual, on thetorah.com by Dr. Joseph Weinstein. While Revelisha points out that the ashes of the paraduma itself, its burnt skin, flesh, and fats, do indeed also make up the cleansing ash water, we thank Dr. Weinstein for his contribution to helping us fine-tune our understanding of this ritual. Most of all, we thank you listeners for providing your helpful feedback. If you find this method useful, take a moment to think of others who are seeking to make sense of halakha and share this and our other episodes with them. Meanwhile, as we work together to return the discourse around halakha to common sense and to live up to its lessons, I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.